Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening as together we continue to navigate daily life during confinement. When the novel Dark Town was published in 2016, author Thomas Mullen introduced readers to a historical subject that ought to be widely known, namely the racial integration of Atlanta's police department in 1948. The characters of Officer Lucius Boggs and Officer Tommy Smith put a face to the struggles with injustice that real-life men faced daily while working within institutionalized racism. We'll listen back to that conversation later in the program. Before recommended reading, some new music for you. So long ago, there were always going to be movies made. There were always going to be film scores recorded and always composers to chat with, music to analyze, and recommendations to make. With the entertainment business at a standstill now, there are only a handful of productions that made it through post-production before the shutdowns, WABE film music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart is with us as we navigate this new reality of the film music world. Scott, welcome back. Hey, thanks, Lois. Great to be here. And you are absolutely right. Here comes this new normal for all of us and for film and television and for all the musicians who are a part of that world. We are getting daily updates from the major studios as execs look at each other around the big table or probably around the Zoom screen and uh, shrug. Um, there are multiple film releases, including big ones like Mulan and Black Widow and Antebellum and a whole bunch of others that have been rescheduled due to COVID-19. We're seeing what would have been Memorial Day and July 4th blockbusters, uh, which are huge moneymakers for the studios and the theaters, being bumped to anywhere from late July into the, into the fall and even a year out into summer 2021. Oh, it is mind-boggling. Scott, we know movies are ridiculously expensive to make with production costs often exceeding $100 million for large films. They make money in the theaters, but straight to streaming, that is bypassing the theaters, doesn't have a lot of economic models. This seems to be a major gamble for studios. Yeah, to lose all that revenue is a major risk. And of course, the exhibitors, that is the theater owners and all the concessions companies, are not happy about this at all. So it remains to be seen whether moviegoers will be able to 
or be willing to venture back into theaters, even with social distancing by midsummer. Yeah, in a way, it's a similar problem to a lot of the concert halls that are measuring how far their seats are apart <laughs> and trying to figure out how many concerts they'll have to do to equal one concert if people were actually sitting next to each other. And there are lots of studios that are kind of hedging their bets by moving premieres really far into the future and bypassing theaters altogether. Disney did announce on uh, May 12th that their filmed version of Hamilton, which was originally scheduled for October 2021, so more than a year away from now, will now be streaming on Disney Plus this July 3rd. Top Gun Maverick, which is a Paramount production, it's predicted to be one of the biggest hits of the year, has been rescheduled numerous times and is now kind of slotted in for Christmas 2020. Oh, goodness. The beta test film seems to be Christopher Nolan's Tenet, scheduled for a July 17th in theaters debut by Nolan's request. Will movie fans flock to theaters as they normally do for holiday releases? Or will COVID-19 consumer behavior have a temporary or possibly a permanent effect on gathering in confined spaces? The entire industry is watching expectantly. Yeah, these are big, big questions for all aspects of movie, film, television. Um, Ludwig Göransson, who scored Black Panther, was the composer on board for Tenet. He's provided that score already. So film music fans are also kind of waiting to see how things go with uh, recording and providing music either from your home studio or from your computer during this time. So let's take a look at a handful of movies and their soundtracks that did make it into theaters in the late winter of 2019 and into the spring before the quarantine. Twenty years ago, Howard Shore was dominating the movie music scene and cleaning up at the Oscars for his original scores for the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Today, we'll take a look at two of his recent soundtracks. The Song of Names is a Holocaust drama directed by Francois Girard of The Red Violin and adapted from the novel by Norman Lebrecht. In the 1930s, a young violin prodigy disappears just before giving his debut concert. Years later, his adopted brother travels through Europe to find him. This is a really compelling drama, and the, the Song of Names soundtrack features violinist Ray Chen, who plays in a number of Shore's soundtrack cues, but also the Ninth Caprice of Paganini's and the Courant movement of Bach's Second Violin Partita. Some really excellent playing. Song of Names itself refers to a musical recitation of the names of all who died at the Treblinka extermination camp. And parts of this main brooding theme appear throughout the film in different guises. And it kind of serves to unify the story in both a musical and a thematic way.
This melody has a definite Hebraic and Eastern European quality, and the entire soundtrack leans toward a more serious and somber tone. This is a subtle and nuanced soundtrack with a very supportive, dramatic template. Howard Shore also provided a second soundtrack for the latest film from Oscar-winning director Michel Hazanavicius of The Artist. It's a French fairy tale starring Omar Sy and Berenice Bejo. This is Le Prince Oublié, or The Lost Prince. This Disney-esque film centers around a devoted dad who takes his daughter to Storyland every night. And this is a fantasy film studio where the adventures come to life. The music by Howard Shore is a little more reminiscent of his Oscar-nominated score to Hugo from 2010. Not so much Lord of the Rings music. And the cues tend to support this fairy tale backdrop in a very atmospheric way without attaching too much import to the storyline. Here's a cue, Le Monde des Histoires. soundtrack is melody packed although I'm not sure they're as ear buggy as a lot of the themes in the Lord of the Rings movies. This is a really well crafted score by a talented musician that helps bring I guess what would be an otherwise French kids cartoon to have more of a Hollywood sweep about it. <laughs> Instead of popcorn I wonder if they eat crepes while those children watch the <laughs> movies. Yes. It really is a gorgeous score. Le Prince Oublié opened in France and Belgium in February with English subtitles. We'll be back after a short break with more of Scott Stewart's Spring Film Music playlist on WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart. He's sharing his favorite film scores from spring movies. From French fantasy in 2020, we travel back to Victorian England and the eccentric world of Dr. Doolittle, the famed physician who could talk with animals. Don't we all? <laughs> you may be familiar with the 1967 musical version with Rex Harrison and Samantha Egger. In this reboot... 
Robert Downey Jr. plays the title character along with a star-studded supporting cast. There was also a Dr. Doolittle series with Eddie Murphy, I Yes, believe. yes. <laughs> Fantastic. I, always one for talking animal movies, Scott. I do not miss any of them, but this one was released just on January 17th to overwhelmingly negative reviews. It, it has not done well with the critics or audiences. And, you know, sometimes this happens. Uh, reportedly, it needed about $500 million just to break even, which it did not receive. So Universal Studios kind of took a big hit on this one. I was looking at some of the reviews online, and there was an English critic, Mark Kermode, that said it was, quote, a terrible script, terrible visuals, and dull plot with dismal gags, end Aww. quote. So, you know, that's the world of art and entertainment. You have some winners and some losers. And, of course, there's always time that can change perspectives. But I thought it would uh, be interesting to see how a uh, maybe not so great movie does with a soundtrack by kind of a hot composer. Yeah, and sometimes... A soundtrack can save or at least help a suffering film or render a mediocre film memorable. That's right. Such as a movie I remember from the 90s only because I recall its use of music. It was called Someone to Watch Over Me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mistakenly, I thought it might have something to do with Gershwin when I checked it out. It had nothing to do but had a gorgeous soundtrack. So can the music rescue Dr. Doolittle from disappointing us? Well, they definitely called him the big guns with A-list Hollywood composer Danny Elfman. And what you get in Dr. Doolittle is what you might expect from Danny Elfman, music that's well-suited for action for big heroic deeds for some romance and for some comedy big orchestrations there's lots of course of danny elfman's simpsons like frenetic episodes <laughs> lots of twinkles and uh choir is in there as usual i'm not sure if the music is specifically and deeply related to the story of Doolittle. It might just be in the bag of tricks that works really well for any number of movies, but it's certainly a fun romp out of Elfman's stable of fantasy films. The cue called He's Back develops the main theme from Dr. Doolittle very nicely. soundtrack is a marvelous action piece called the betsy chase he ends up chasing a misbehaving giraffe as could happen to any of us around <laughs> his estate This cue has the dance qualities of a galloping Irish jig, and I'm really drawn to the prominence of the bassoons 
in the opening right before things kind of open up. In this cue, you can hear the many layers of melodies and counter melodies that kind of swirl around each other. It feels a little bit more like the Pirates of the Caribbean than Corpse Bride, but it's still really fantastic writing. This is what I would consider to be generic fantasy, comedy, adventure, romance, action music, and it's great. But I still file it under that category that's not necessarily giving us important information about this specific movie. And as great as it is, it's not really enough to save this dumpster fire of a movie. <laughs> Such a shame. You know, that was one of my favorite books as a kid. I, I can still see the hard copy library version of it. I checked out more than once. Oh, yeah. It's super reading. And in fact, the, the movie that was out in the 60s, the, the song, Talk to the Animals, won Best Song for the Oscars. So it was super popular. Yeah. Now... Also in the reboot and sequel bin is Jumanji 2, The Next Level, a fantasy adventure directed by Jake Kasdan, starring Dwayne Johnson and Jack Black. This is a sequel to the 2017 Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle and a descendant of the 1995 original starring Robin Williams. It opened just before Christmas, which seems years ago, yes, but it was uh, only <laughs> it was only December of 2019. And this Jumanji 2 opened to generally positive reviews. Yeah, the, the new Jumanji installment, it's very different from the Robin Williams version in the 90s, but uh, it's doing its own thing and uh, kind of being updated more into the video game world than the board game world. Henry Jackman provided the soundtrack to both Welcome to the Jungle in 2017 and this film. Jackman is an English composer who cut his teeth at Remote Control Studios with Hans Zimmer, and we've heard lots of his music. We've heard Wreck-It Ralph. Uh, Kong, Skull Island, and Captain America. And he's also done a good bit of work on the Uncharted video game series as of late. I think this is a really fun kind of retro 90s adventure score that brings back themes from Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle and also adds some fresh material. Henry Jackman also does a good job of scoring the quote-unquote real world and the world of the video game so that we're able to navigate between the two. A musical highlight from this score is the Attack of the Mandrills. Jackman is good friends with Sean Powell, and you can't help but hear parallels in their frenetic, how to train your dragon, rollicking, bombast, and all the sections of the orchestra. You hear great strings, some really exciting brass, and extra attention to the percussion. Speaking of composer John Powell, well known for How to Train Your Dragon and the Jason Bourne series. Scott, I know that John is one of your favorite composers on the film scene. He's written an adventurous and heartfelt score for the 2020 adaptation of Jack London's classic, Call of the Wild. It was directed by Chris Sanders and starred Harrison Ford. Yeah, I actually saw Call of the Wild on its opening day, which was my birthday in February. Aww. And I really enjoyed the story. You know, there have been numerous iterations of Call of the Wild. This is great storytelling and cinematography. The soundtrack is spectacular. The CGI dogs 
were a little distracting at first because it's this really bizarre mixture of live humans and computer generated animals. So you kind of have to make peace with that aspect of the mixture to fully buy into the film. But once you do, I think the John Powell score brings life and warmth and a kind of depth to the humans and the dogs as he's been so successful in the past with both real life and computer generated characters. Mm -hmm. Because of COVID-19, Call of the Wild didn't enjoy a normal run in theaters and was released digitally in March as well as on DVD and Blu-ray just this past week. Yeah, in a way, this movie is a perfect platform for John Powell, who I think excels at intimate human drama. He's wonderful at scoring breathtaking landscape vistas, which there are plenty of in Call of the Wild, and really good at thrilling action sequences. And they unify very beautifully with these themes that are very well connected to the specifics of the story that you're dealing with. John Powell himself conducted the soundtrack at the Newman scoring stage at Fox Studios in Los Angeles. There was a 90-piece orchestra, a 60-voice choir, and a number of folksy ethnic instruments like penny whistles and mandolins, fiddles, harmonium, and a 12-person banjo brigade. Wow, 12? Pretty incredible. The main theme of Call of the Wild appears in several guises. Here is the cue, Wake the Girls. this as both playful and mischievous but also warm and loving. John Powell has a really beautiful way of distilling a tune and then giving it shades of treatment that tie it into the story that you're listening to. In this instance we hear a mysterious opening that lapses into a very folk-like setting with banjos, fiddles, and even some whistles. Scott, those instruments evoke a sense of Celtic music, Irish, Scottish, and, and even some English folk song roots. And it seems to reflect the blend of cultures in the Yukon during the gold rush. Yeah, I think it's a fabulous collection of instruments that place us in this setting. It's technically immigrant music, right? Stuff that people traveling from abroad would have brought with them, plus hints of Native American and Inuit music. He turns to strings and harmonica in a very lovely version of the main theme in this track called We Carry Love.
And in addition to some of the lyrical and reflective music, there are plenty of orchestral workouts for John Powell adventure music fans. Buck Takes the Lead is a pivotal moment in the story and a moment when the music takes the lead in the movie. In true John Powell fashion, we hear this interplay between Buck's theme and the dog sled theme as Buck becomes the head dog of the pack. Powell cleverly weaves themes for the characters around each other as the interactions progress throughout the story. This is another John Powell soundtrack with a lot of heart and music that is intricately woven into the drama, the setting, and the relationships of the characters. There are a lot of good composers out there, but there aren't a lot of composers who think about the human experience like poets and authors and screenwriters and philosophers as John does. He is a musical artist who I think is a cut above the rest. This is great, great music. So even while film sets and recording studios are silent, there's still a lot of good listening out there. And hopefully this will keep you good company while you're listening at home. As always, Scott, thank you for your expertise and insight. You help us further appreciate the role of music in filmmaking and its impact on us as viewers. Thanks, Lois. My pleasure. Dr. Scott Stewart is WABE music contributor and host of strike up the band. He's on the music faculty at the Westminster Schools and conductor of the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony. The novel Dark Town by Thomas Mullen is a riveting drama set in Atlanta in the late 1940s. The book explores a murder police corruption, and difficult race relations during that era. When Mullen joined me in 2016 as Darktown was released, he began with reading his description of Atlanta early in the book. Atlanta, Georgia. Two parts Confederate racist, to two parts Negro, to one part something that doesn't quite have a name for it yet. Neither city nor country, but some odd combination. A once sleepy railroad crossing that had exploded due to the wartime need for materiel and the necessities of shipping it. Even after the war, all those factories and textile mills and rail yards were still churning because normalcy had returned and Americans were desperate for new clothes and washing machines and automobiles. And the South was very good at providing cheap, non-unionized labor. So Atlanta continued to grow the trains continued to disgorge new residents, and the tenements grew more crowded, and the moonshine continued to be driven down from the mountains, and the streets spilled over with even yet more passion and schemes and brawls, because there on the Georgia Piedmont, something had been set loose that might never again be contained. When did you first decide to write this story? A few years ago, I was reading a great book about Atlanta history called Where Peachtree Meets Sweet Auburn by a former AJC writer named Gary Pomerantz. Uh, it follows a black family and a white family through a century and a half of Atlanta history. And in the middle of this 600-page book, there's a four-page passage about the fact that in 1948, the city of Atlanta finally hired their first eight black police officers. It was a big political victory at the time because black community leaders had been asking mayors for years to hire black cops and kept getting pushed off. Finally, in 1948, 
the city did hire them. But because it was still the Jim Crow era, because it was you know a few years before some of the first key victories of the civil rights movement, these eight men had to operate under a number of Jim Crow restrictions. They could only patrol the black neighborhoods. They could not drive squad cars, so they had to walk their beats. They couldn't even set foot in the headquarters because according to a Newsweek article that came out a year before, as many as one quarter of Atlanta cops were members of the Ku Klux Klan. So Mayor Hartsfield and Police Chief Herbert Jenkins were very concerned that the mere sight of these black men in uniform would incense the white officers and that if the black cops dared enter the headquarters, the white cops would riot and attack them, which wasn't an unfounded fear because at that time in our history, there had been a number of instances where returning black soldiers who came back from war and dared to wear their uniform at a you know, Fourth of July parade or something like that were lynched. It happened a number of times in Georgia and South Carolina in the years right before 1948. So for the black officers' protection, instead of using the white headquarters, they had to operate out of a makeshift precinct located in the basement of the black YMCA on Butler Street. Uh, and last but certainly not least, they could only arrest black people. They couldn't arrest whites. So the irony here is that they were just trying to serve and protect the public voter rights. Um, that struggle was to uphold the Constitution. Americans are entitled to vote. But the insult of rejecting people who risk, who choose to risk their lives to protect you, whether in the military or in this case in the police, is just beyond comprehension. But you go into intricate detail to explain what these people were up against. Um, what were some of these, if you could give us a rundown of not just the constraints on these policemen, um, the limitations on them are so ridiculous. Take us through the absurd rules that were imposed on them. You mentioned, you know, not to be able to wear their uniforms. Go going to and from work. To and yeah. from the so police station. Not only could they not go to the headquarters, but they had to wear the civilian clothes to the Y and then change, work their shift, and at the end of their shift, change again. And there, too, the idea was supposedly for their safety, because while they were working, they were walking in pairs. But then after work, they'd go their separate ways to walk home. And the mayor and the police chief were afraid that, you know, one lone black man in uniform walking home at two in the morning, which is when their shift typically ended, would be targeted by whites. Um, and also, they were, they were just beat cops. It was more than a decade before any of the black officers were promoted. So they weren't conducting homicide investigations and that sort of thing. Um, so they were, you know, they were really looked down upon. And one thing I want to point out to people, sometimes people describe Darktown as a book about the integration of the Atlanta police, but it's not really true. They weren't integrated at all. This, this isn't like a police version of Jackie Robinson integrating the Dodgers. They were still you know, literally segregated. They were in a different building, treated differently, had different rules, and didn't interact with white officers all that much. In fact, one of the main characters who turns out to be not such a horrible guy, Dennis Rakestraw, tries to reason, if you will, with some of his fellow white cops by saying, this is a better kind of segregation. Um, do you think he fully believed that? Well, one of the things I wanted to tap into and that I needed to learn about more myself was, you know, what were the different opinions that white Southerners, white Atlantans had in 1948? It's very easy to generalize and say that everybody back then was a you know, fire-breathing racist. And that, of course, isn't true. There were racial moderates, there were racial progressives. But even then, what was a white racial progressive in 1948 like? Um, when you write historical fiction, you don't want to fall into the trap of letting the characters be too modern and, and say things that are too out of 2016. And that it can be very tempting because when you're writing characters, you, you want to write, say you're trying to write a likable character, then you don't want them to say some horribly sexist thing. But you know, maybe they would have said that in 1948. So you need to be honest about their attitudes about race or attitudes about gender. Um, and so there were some progressive white Southerners, and Officer Denny Rakestraw is 
he fits into that category, I would say. He's young, he's in his early 20s, and he just got back from World War II, where he was one of the first soldiers to see the concentration camps. He was also raised by a German immigrant mother um, who was teased a lot when she was growing up for being you know, a dirty hun, which is what they called Germans during World War I. So he was brought up not to use racial epithets. He thinks of himself as a more forward-thinking Southerner. And having seen the Holocaust and seen the logical extension of race hatred, which is to wipe out an entire class of people, he doesn't want that to happen in the South. And the Holocaust did have a big impact on a lot of white people who hadn't really thought about race much before. It opened a lot of people's eyes. And, you know, Officer Rakestraw wants the South to be better, but at the same time, it's still 1948. How far can he really go? And I wanted to make sure that I didn't fall into the trap of, you know, writing this heroic white character because that crops up a lot in stories, you know, either novels or movies about civil rights and the civil rights era. Um, I think too often the white character becomes the hero and the story is about the moral awakening of white people. And I didn't want that to happen. So I don't want to give too much away, but I will say that he's a character that he's pulled in different directions, but he's not going to be the savior of the story. Now, he, although he is certainly um, a person with humanity, uh, it's much more complicated. And the other characters are also vividly drawn. Um, Mainly, we have Lucius Boggs, who uh, is one of the black officers who feels this momentousness of the occasion when he's sworn in that sense of responsibility. And his partner, Tommy Smith, who doesn't come from the privileged background that Lucius does. Lucius is more house-educated. But Tommy is much more schooled in dealing with whites. Lionel Dunlow, who could hold the title of most despicable villain, though later we learn that that would be um, class discrimination on our part because there are well-educated, white, moneyed people who are equally villainous to him. Two wonderful secondary characters are Uncle Percy and Mama Dove. Before we even get to Lucius and Tommy, would you talk about Mama Dove? Mama Dove runs a brothel in town, and one of the tensions that came up when the black officers were hired is that obviously they wanted to shut down brothels and gambling dens. But for generations, the white cops didn't really mind if brothels and gambling dens operated in the black part of town. And so the black cops want to shut her down, but she's very connected. She has a lot of strong relationships with some of the white officers. Um, and she, she makes a habit of teasing the black cops because she feels that they may be cops, but she has connections that are going to allow her to outlast the cops. And that she even warns one of the new black cops, you know, in a few years, this little experiment's going to fail and you're not going to be a cop anymore, but I'm still going to be here. Let's hear about the two main characters, Lucius Boggs and Tommy Smith. Sure. So Boggs and Smith come from very different backgrounds. Lucius Boggs is the son of a preacher, and he has had a relatively privileged life. Um, The Sweet Auburn community, which was the main black part of town in Atlanta, was a very vibrant community, and it had a very complex class structure. There were middle-class African-Americans. There were wealthy African-Americans. You know, there was a million-dollar black-owned bank, a million-dollar black-owned insurance company. And I wanted one of my characters to come from this, you know, privileged area. So he hasn't had—he's a smart guy. He's a Morehouse graduate. So obviously he knows all about racism. But at the same time, he hasn't had to deal with it in a day-in, day-out way as much as he might have. Because he's grown up in this, you know, this bubble, this this protective cocoon of wealthy black Atlanta. He's part of what W.E.B. Du Bois would have called the Talented Tenth, what was also called the Negro Elite. And so raised by his father, he's been taught that you know, he is a born leader and that it's his obligation to lead his people. So he's just come back from the war. He did not have a terribly good experience at war. And when he finds out, when the city announces that it will hire eight black police officers, he feels a calling, and he thinks that that is what he's meant to do. Although at the same time, because of his privileged background, he's not really cut out for police work, at least not initially. He's not used to the confrontations. He's not used to having his authority questions, and he is a bit 
shocked at first by just how visceral racism is with um, the white officers. So his partner, Tommy Smith, does not come from such a privileged background. He was not a rich kid growing up. He has had to navigate um, you know, more dangerous racial encounters every day of his life. So he's more street smart. He's more aware of the perils that lie all around them. Um, and I think that's one of the tensions in the book is that because these two men come from such different backgrounds, because they were raised so differently, they have different opinions about what to do about different problems. And when they face different obstacles, they have different ideas of how to solve them. Tommy's also very handsome. Yeah, Smith is a bit of a womanizer, and Boggs is a you know, preacher's son, so he's a kind of a, a very, he tries to be a very morally upstanding young man, and he's a little blown away by some of the stuff his partner gets away with. The weather is a main character. I don't know if you intended it that way, but I certainly felt it as a reader. I don't know that I intended it, but you're not the first person to comment on it. So yeah, I, I am kind of obsessed with the weather. Would you read about that? Um, page 35, please. Sure. Summer weather in Atlanta came in one size, big. <laughs> there were big storms and big winds when those storms came, and sometimes a big tornado afterward, then big floods. Or it was big heat, as though the sun had veered out of orbit and was pressing closer and closer, determined to exert itself on the personal space of everyone in the city, get right up next to you, breathe in your face, and laugh at your inability to do anything about it. The one fortunate thing about being on the night shift, Boggs figured, was that it was slightly less grueling to be walking around the city in the dark. <laughs> but there's a famous quote from Elmore Leonard, you know, one of the all-time great crime writers. He wrote a top 10 you know, writing tips list because so many people asked him, how do I be a good writer? So he finally wrote, I think it was run in the New York Times. And I believe rule number one was never write about the weather. And when I read that, I laugh and I, my reply is, yeah, well, Elmore Leonard was from Michigan. <laughs> he didn't have to deal. If I lived in Michigan, I might not have wanted to write about the weather much either. But to live in the South and not write about the weather... Uh, to me, that'd be like being a Hawaiian author and not writing about the ocean. It's kind of important. Ah, well, you even have Rakestraw um, during his World War II years um, longing for home and the thick, overwhelming ripeness of the South. Here's a quote Southern hospitality was a delightful weapon to wield against people who don't want to talk to you. You're relatively new to Atlanta, Thomas. When did you first observe this? I, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've lived south of the Mason-Dixon line for 16 years now. The last eight have been in Atlanta. And being raised northern, you are raised with certain stereotypes about southerners. And I'm, I'm certainly plead guilty to having some of those um, you know, stereotype divisions in my head before I lived here. Um, but I've also always been struck by you know, the pride people have of living in the South. And sometimes that can be misinterpreted. Sometimes it is used badly, in my opinion, that Southern pride being equated with racism or you know, nostalgia for the antebellum South. And I obviously don't agree with that. But I think Northerners too often assume that anyone who has, you know, Southern pride is therefore also racist or, or that there are issues there. And that's not the case. So in writing this book, obviously I'm writing a lot about race and racism, but I also wanted to tap into that, you know, strong Southern pride that a lot of people feel. And so Rakestraw, again, he's, he's a racial progressive, but he's been at war for four years. He is thrilled to be home. He loves Georgia. He loves the South. He never wants to leave again. And I wanted to be that, I, I wanted that love of the South to be an important part of his character. I wish we had more time, but in the few moments we have left, the book is important enough because of its historical subject. Did you also intend to hold it up as a mirror to racial strife and police brutality today? Well, I'll say yes and no. I started the book the summer of 2012, and I was actually finishing a rough draft in the summer of 2014, which is when Michael Brown was killed and Ferguson exploded into riots. And that summer, there were so many events, Baltimore, Staten Island, that really put race and policing in the national spotlight in a way that they probably hadn't been since Rodney King when, when I was in high school. So this book was not a deliberate response or reaction to the, the recent spate of police brutality and the Black Lives Matter movement. 
because I was pretty much written it before then. But that being said, I think that race has always been a key issue in American history, and it's something that we're always grappling with. So in 2012, when I started the book, we still had Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman. We still had a lot of you know, racially coded criticism of, of President Obama. There's always something going on. It might not always be the big story in the media spotlight, but I do think race is just a vital issue in American history and in our present. And I think one of the fun things about historical fiction is that, as you say, it puts a mirror on our own times. We get to see all the differences between then and now, but we're also reminded of certain similarities between our time and then. And also it allows us to find some of the historical roots in issues that are still playing out today. Thomas Mullen, it's been a privilege to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Award-winning author Thomas Mullen lives in Decatur. That interview was in 2016, after the release of his novel Darktown. A follow-up to Darktown, Lightning Men, came out in 2017. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. to hear about Explore Georgia, part of the state's tourism office. They have family-friendly activities to help us explore Georgia sites without leaving the house. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. And do check out our new podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.